Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Coming up in the second half of the program today, we're going to revisit a part of a conversation from February with Sarah Freeman. Sarah Freeman is an assistant professor of neurobiology at Utah State University. She studies the neurobiology of strong social bonds. Last year, during the height of the pandemic, her mother died. Sarah Freeman wrote about science and grief and love in Utah State Magazine in an article titled Love and Loss During a Pandemic. That's coming up in the second half of the program. In the first half, uh, UPR, as you know, broadcasts a weekly interview with Utah State University President Noel Cockett. And uh, earlier, you heard a condensed version of this conversation uh, elsewhere on uh, our broadcasting schedule. Uh, today on Access Utah, we're going to hear the full interview for this week. And we're going to talk about new rules at USU regarding face masks, we'll talk about vaccination rights, transitioning to a more normal life, and we'll look ahead to the fall. Here's my conversation recorded yesterday with Utah State University President Noah Cockett. President Cockett, thanks so much for taking time with us again. Absolutely, my pleasure. So it seems like we, we talk about the pandemic all the time, COVID, but of course it's been very important. An important change of rules went into effect this week at Utah State University. Can you tell us a little bit about that? We, of course, watch carefully what CDC has recommended and had realized that we would be able to ease some of the mask requirements and social distancing requirements when spring semester was finished. We were basing that on a very clear decline in positivity rates, infection rates, as well as knowing that many of our people, as well as students, have been vaccinated. So we had planned to reduce the requirements and masks and really just focus on larger gatherings or meetings where there may be travelers coming into Cache Valley, such as our senior citizens or some of the camps that we hold on campus. However, a major change occurred through the Utah legislature with a bill that they passed during the interim session, and that was that higher ed, public ed should not require masks for any activities, events, that are being held on our campuses and centers. And the bill said that this would go into effect after spring semesters had concluded at whatever school was being considered. So based on that, we then extended the removal of the mandate on masks uh, across all of our campuses and centers effective June 1st. And again, that is not only what we were hearing from CDC, but a clear directive from the Utah legislature. So there are no masks unless a person would like to make the personal choice to wear them. And so I haven't seen too many masks on campus today. <laughs> yeah, I, I haven't either. We've, you know, of course, we're following guidelines here at UPR as well. Um, I just want to quote a paragraph here from a message you sent out recently to faculty and staff. You say, these changes will shift responsibility for protecting ourselves from infection with COVID-19 from the university to a more personal responsibility. Yes. 
You know, and what my point was there, through our mandates, our policies, our requirements, we were telling people, you know, wear a mask, social distance, work remotely, et cetera. But in thinking about this, how do you come out of a pandemic, again, based on the information that's coming out from CDC, which is research-based, the risk of infection has been dropping as the United States and in some countries, other countries, the COVID pandemic is becoming more into control. So rather than dictating how people will do this, I really wanted people to understand it's their personal choice. If a person wants to continue to wear a mask, they should absolutely feel free to do that. If they would like to request that they continue to work remotely, we will accommodate that through the summer. If they would feel more comfortable with uh, distance between themselves and another in a meeting, we will absolutely honor that. On the other hand, if a person has been vaccinated or feels that the likelihood of infection has been reduced, they may choose not to wear a mask. And so it's looking at each person and how they want to protect themselves or families, et cetera, from COVID. So really moving us from a regulatory institution to placing a person's health and well-being, uh, that responsibility back on themselves. In this message, you emphasize two tools. You say the best tools we have for for, for doing this, for making uh, progress, is get vaccinated and stay home when you're sick. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so with the vaccination, once uh, they've done the appropriate studies and followed up on people, the data is out there that a vaccination for COVID dramatically reduces the likelihood of infection, but even more importantly, essentially eliminates that severe disease that could lead to death. And again, if that's what we're trying to prevent, you know, the vaccination does a fabulous job of that. The second thing is that there are a large number of people who have been infected and in the past, and as they've done the studies on those, those people have protecting antibodies at least for uh, 90 days. And so, again, knowing what you yourself, what your circumstances are, now you can make those choices in um, how you protect yourself and protect others. The second thing is we still continue to offer the resources that we have, the COVID leave if someone realizes that they have COVID and are required to, you know, self-isolate, remember those words, self-isolate and quarantine, That's right. if they've been exposed, uh, we still offer the COVID leave, which is outside of the sick leave and uh, still pays the person. So our hope is that if someone feels they may have COVID, 
which is highly infectious, as we've learned over the pandemic, rather than taking the chance of coming into work and infecting others. We would like them to stay home and then three days into feeling ill, go and see if they test positive for COVID. So we still have a lot of testing options here on the Logan campus. And then uh, there's always Test Utah that people can do to get that test result. Depending on that, you know, they may want to come back to work if they're negative and feeling better. If they're positive, even if they are feeling better, they should stay home for that 10 to 14 days because even though they may feel better, they still could infect people. So, you know, we've learned a lot after, you know, essentially 18 months of people studying, researching, and discussing COVID. We know what works, and vaccinations are working, and uh, staying home if there's the possibility of being infected with COVID or identifying that you've got covid Those have been remarkably powerful tools in reducing the risk of infection to yourselves and to others. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and we're talking with Utah State University President Noelle Cockett. Uh, Every week, we uh, conduct an interview with her. We're grateful for her taking the time to do that. And uh, usually, you hear the condensed version of the interview. Uh, Today on the program, we had opportunity to give you the full uh, interview. And uh, coming up following a break, we'll continue this uh, conversation. We'll talk about uh, the ins and outs of transitioning to a more normal life as hopefully we've come out of the pandemic or the pandemic eases here. And we'll look ahead to the fall. And later in the program, we're going to revisit part of a conversation from February with Sarah Freeman. She's an assistant professor of neurobiology at Utah State University. And last year, during the height of the pandemic, her mother died. And uh, Sarah Freeman wrote in Utah State Magazine about science and grief and love, an article titled Love and Loss During a Pandemic. That's coming up later in the program. I'm Jerrica D. Wortham, a poet and author from Tulsa, Oklahoma. A hundred years ago, a race massacre took place in our historic Greenwood District, nicknamed Black Wall Street because of its wealth and entrepreneurial spirit. I want to show you how our community is marking both the centennial and the remarkable success of Black Wall Street through art and music. That's Hip Hop and Healing, commemorating Tulsa on the BBC World Service. Friday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Support for Project Resilience programming on Utah Public Radio is brought to you in part by our members and USU Center for Persons with Disabilities, working to create healthy, inclusive communities through innovative research, service, technical assistance, and education. Information at cpd.usu.edu. In 1971, a young reporter spent a month in a hotel room with a bombshell. I slept with the Pentagon Papers. Behind the scoop of a lifetime on the next Reveal. Saturday at noon on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Uh, Glad you're with me. Uh, And this part of the program, we are talking with Utah State University President Noel Cockett. (music) 
I just want to maybe have you reflect. You mentioned 18 months, and it, boy, it seems like a long 18 months, right? Um, right, right. But, but as we look fact, back... I don't think it is. I think it's 14. Is it 14? It? Yeah, it seems like 18. Yeah, if we think yeah. of March, yeah, this is, for, I guess, yeah. For sure, yeah. but it, but it seems that long. But this seems like an inflection point right now. You know, take the masks off, uh, try to ease back into, I don't know, back to normal or a new normal. As you reflect at this point, what's top of mind for you? Well, um, I realized it's a little bit like water skiing, how there's that moment in time where you sort of lift up onto those skis and lift out of the water. And I feel like it's a bit of that coming out of the pandemic. You know, it's not, It's as we talked about, it's not a switch. Like one day we're all dealing with the pandemic, the next day it's not the pandemic. And so I realized that it actually takes a bit of effort to lift out of the pandemic. So that's what we're using the summer for. You know, again, if you, you feel uncomfortable, there's still the possibility of working remotely. We can accommodate all these various things. But to help people move in to that uh, pandemic and to lift themselves in there. You know, we have opened our offices, our different places around our university that people can return to work, to not to work because I know they've been working. They can return to their office or their space and, you know, start feeling comfortable And I know myself, I'm still a little bit, you know, I went to Salt Lake yesterday and I wore my mask into a couple of places and no one else was wearing a mask. Now, what's interesting there is you'd like to think that everybody that is not wearing a mask knows they're not positive for COVID or have been vaccinated, but there is still that possibility that you could be exposed. And so I think, again, it comes down to that personal responsibility, how you're going to protect yourself. And that's good hygiene. Watch where you're standing next to people you don't know, maybe wearing a mask if you're in a crowded place, if you would like to take that precaution. And I think all of us have a little bit like, really, really? Do I feel safe? And um, I think I saw something in the New York Times today. I think on May 31st, there were 17,000 cases of COVID in the United States. Some of the lowest numbers, a lowest number that's occurred since a year ago. Of course, we're all a little bit watching those numbers. And certainly if we see them go back up, then we'll have to implement some of those conditions that we've removed. So just a little bit cautious, watching, watching, watching the numbers. And like I said, we'll be better prepared in the future on how to, again, reduce that risk of infection. I think when states were removing the mask requirements, there was some thought that that would see spikes again. didn't really uh, happen. I think, you know, our numbers in the United States, vaccinated people in combination, like I said, people who have been positive and now have protecting antibodies is covering a lot of people. 
Once the CDC came out and said that if you had been vaccinated, you really were going to be okay if you didn't wear a mask, they said that uh, numbers of people pursuing the vaccination before that announcement had started to drop off. But within a day, there had been significant interest in increasing in getting vaccinated. So I think people are weighing their options and saying, am I going to be okay if I don't wear a mask? Well, one of the great ways, regardless of who you're standing next to and whether or not they're positive, is through the vaccine. So I'm cautiously optimistic that, uh, at least in the United States, we're seeing a turn here for the better. But I totally respect people who still want to make that uh, personal decision to have that extra protection of masks, social distancing, etc. In fact, today, for the first time since 14 months ago, I think it was, I shook some people's hands and felt okay about doing that. So I think it's these little things that we didn't realize how far we had moved. Now, as they come back on, it's like, wow, this is great. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I I shook hands for the first time, I think. Oh, it's quite recently. It it felt weird, but good. You know, it felt felt strange after so much time. Yeah. Uh, so and to, I do think yeah, you're ahead. exactly right. We are all having to learn, you know, where our comfort is and if we do feel comfortable moving forward. But I guess just as we used to say, are you comfortable having a face-to-face meeting? Still want to watch and be careful about that. Do you feel comfortable having that face-to-face meeting? Do you feel comfortable shaking hands? I even will ask, do you feel comfortable if I don't wear a mask? Yeah, I think that's probably important going forward, isn't it? Judge the comfort level of the other person. Yeah. Right, right. I want to be considerate. Yes. As we look ahead, of course, this is uh, two or three months away, but uh, I know you're planning, USU is planning a return to in-person, you know, much more in-person classes, much more like regular. Right. I guess that we're going forward with... With optimism, uh, planning for that, and I guess if the numbers rise again, we'll have to adjust. Is that the way you look at it? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's exactly right. In fact, I was speaking with John Hartwell, our vice president for athletics, and we're selling season tickets for football, basketball, various things like that, anticipate a full house with the caveat that things could change. But we know so much more now than we did 14 months ago that I don't think we'll ever have to move to a complete remote educational experience or complete virtual athletic events or because we're all so in tune to it as those numbers start to rise. I think we would quickly implement, re-implement some of those things that that did help us get it in control. So I just have a thought that it'll never get as bad, hopefully, as it was, say, last November, that we will spot it, we will know how to react to it, we will have the kinds of things we can do to keep things in check so that we don't have to move back to full remote. Maybe 
less numbers at events, maybe, again, put back in the mask mandates, but never go to that complete shutdown. And I guess uh, part of this will depend on, I'm just making an assumption here, you hear this from the CDC, vaccinations are going to be important. And we've, a lot of places have kind of hit a stall point with vaccinations. Right, right. And I'm hoping that people continue to do the things that kept themselves safe and others. That's the vaccination. It keeps yourself safe, but it also keeps others because you've removed that reservoir of virus that can then infect others. And so, you know, that's, I think, what the pandemic did. We stopped thinking so much about ourselves and really looked around to see the immunocompromised people or those that were high-risk COVID. We did actions that helped ourselves, but maybe elderly neighbors or our family members or people that were at a higher risk. And vaccination is one of those things that helps others as well. So... Yeah, I think we really are moving to a good spot. And some of the countries that are having so many troubles right now, Brazil, Thailand, India, they haven't been able to deploy the vaccine as effectively as the United States and don't have the number of people that have those antibodies from their previous infection. Now, the thing is that antibodies do decline over time, and so it's likely that we'll need boosters if COVID is around in 6 to 12 months, and people who were infected in the past, their antibodies definitely decline, and someday they will be susceptible again. So a lot of people that I've talked with who have been infected in the past have been following antibody levels uh, through their doctor and through the test to identify when it's time to get that vaccine and restore that protection. So that could be one thing that does cause numbers of infections go back up if previously infected people have declining antibodies and then become reinfected without getting that vaccination. Thing two that I just want to mention, you know, we have very, very low numbers of tests per day. In fact, here in Logan, we've got our testing center open for only two hours a day. We're getting 10 to maybe on a high day, 20 people. We were still seeing at least one positive every day. Um, this last week, we've had more negative days than a positive. So, again, we're watching those very carefully. We'll be able to, you know, through our Utah government, Bear River Health Department here in Cache Valley, really watch those numbers and be ready if change is needed. Well, uh, we've reached the end of our, our time uh, here. We've been talking with uh, Utah State University President Noel Cockett. President Cockett, I always appreciate you taking time for us. Yes, yes. And uh, I hope people do keep being healthy and safe. And, you know, I'd love to see more people vaccinated. And uh, we'll keep going strong.
Our thanks to uh, President Cockett. Um, that uh, conversation recorded yesterday. Coming up following a break, we're going to revisit a portion of our conversation with Fe- in February uh, with Sarah Freeman, who's Assistant Professor of Neurobiology at Utah State University. Last year, during the height of the pandemic, her mother died, and she wrote in Utah State Magazine about science and grief and love, an article titled Love and Loss During a Pandemic. And that's uh, coming up following a break. Next time on L.A. Theatre Works, a religious scholar is searching for answers. I want a clear view of God. Even as her own faith is shaken. Why would God allow such a thing? The Busy World is Hushed by Keith Bunin. Next time on L.A. Theatre Works. Tune in Friday night at 9 here on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access Utah, and uh, now a segment uh, from a conversation first broadcast on this program uh, in February of uh, this year. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We have with us for the hour uh, Dr. Sarah Freeman. She's an assistant professor of neurobiology at Utah State uh, University. Um, and uh, she uh, wrote a very interesting, moving article in the latest uh, edition of Utah State Magazine. You can find that at utahstatemagazine.usu.edu. It's titled Love and Loss During a Pandemic. Uh, the first part of the program, we talked about her research uh, dealing with oxytocin. And uh, quoting Dr. Freeman here, uh, um, researchers have found in recent years that oxytocin is critical for the formation and maintenance of strong social bonds and for the social and cognitive abilities that allow us to interact with others in an, uh, in expected ways. Uh, so Dr. Freeman goes on, uh, I quoted this before the break, our own visual social primate brain is being exhausted by COVID-19 pandemic-related challenges uh, of having to navigate our world with fewer facial cues to guide our interactions. Uh, so talk about that. That's uh, You said earlier on that... Uh, Wandering through a world of mass faces uh, reminded you of reading the mind in the eyes test. We talked about that. Uh, this, so we have a lot fewer cues. Yeah, I mean, we're we're you know generally if if we're even interacting with other people, um, we're doing it with masks on, and so we don't get to have you know over half of the face of of um, signals to tell us you know are they are they with us? Are they confused? Are they you know, smiling under there. Um, and so not only is it more challenging and more exhausting and potentially more anxiety-ridden um, to, to have a simple conversation with someone else, it's also uh, missing those, you know, rewarding smiles that we would see if we were interacting with folks without our faces covered. And so, you know, while it is the, you know, easiest and most important thing we can do to protect ourselves and others from this pandemic. It's also just making our day-to-day lives extremely socially draining, um, at least in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, certainly would agree with that, uh, just based on my anecdotal uh, you know, experience. Um, what about uh, all these Zoom interactions? Uh, is uh, I, I take it from reading your article that... Uh, Oxytocin is released much more with with touch, right? With 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 physical interaction. 
Yeah, so touch for sure. Um, Eye contact releases oxytocin in your brain as well, um, which is also something that is a bit strained in a in a Zoom call. You know, we we're we're trying to manage multiple different faces. We can't make eye contact with any of them. You know, mutual eye contact between two people is nearly impossible on a Zoom call. Um, You know, in order to give the look like you're making eye contact, you have to stare right into the camera on your webcam on your computer. And so you're not getting the gaze back from someone else. And so I think it it is just another layer of very subtle uh, social cognitive challenges that we just are dealing with every day. And, you know, whether that's, you know, a contributor to the you know, quote-unquote Zoom fatigue that we're all talking about these days, Um, you know, perhaps. uh, Maybe it's just hours and hours of screen time that we would normally, um, you know, be spending in in contact and conference rooms and and physical, uh, you know, presence of other people. So, yeah, I don't (laughs) – I'm I'm sure there are going to be social psychologists out there studying, you know, Zoom fatigue and and, uh, things like that in the future. Uh, Yeah, uh, I'm sure. It just occurred to me, you know, we're we're talking here by telephone, we're talking on the radio, and people are consuming this uh, only, uh, you know, with their ears. Um, is there, uh, you know, what what's what are the factors there in terms of uh, of, of bonding? Uh, you know, we've all had experiences of talking over the telephone with loved ones. Uh, and that there's sure, there's got to sure. be something there, but but there's only one stimulus there. It's it's the voice. Yes. Yeah, so oxytocin is also important for the um, sort of, you know, appropriate, I don't know if that's the right word, but appropriate processing of auditory information as well, um, especially in animals that use auditory signals um, as one of their primary methods of communication. So um, I'm actually really interested in in digging into this more. Um, I've I've recently started working with the uh, coyotes down at the Millville Predator Center, which is part of the USDA um, uh, National Wildlife Research Center. Um, They have a a number of of captive coyotes living down there, and their research is primarily on uh, human-predator conflict. But they've been really interested in letting me study them for their social behavior because you may not realize um, coyotes also form long-term monogamous social bonds. And they, as many people who live in the, that side of our valley, um, uh, Cache Valley, might realize or might, might hear them um, howling and, and vocalizing um, quite, quite a bit. And so, you know, in order to, to study and understand the way that, that hormones and biology in the brain are, are mediating certain behaviors, you have to ask the question in the right animal model. And so prairie voles might not be the right animal to ask, you know, how do these hormones and how does behavior uh, in the brain, how are they all related to influence um, auditory signals? But with these coyotes, we we can do that. And so um, we've been trying to get a research program up and running, um, thanks to my postdoc who just started last year, Dr. Lexi Toronto, and a new PhD student, Caroline Long, who just started uh, last month. Um, They're going to be working down there to try to figure out what about a, a very complex um, social cognitive organism like a canid, like a canine? Um, you know, they, they're very visually vigilant, um, similar to, to primates. They use their visual systems to navigate their social worlds, but they also vocalize and howl, and they also scent mark. And so we're really interested to try to get into some of the mechanisms that might be driving those complex behaviors to see how these hormones might be working in a in an organism similar to a coyote. 
Interesting. So, uh, how would you set up such an experiment? Uh, with, you know, yeah, it's a, good, <laughs> it's a very good question. So, um, at the moment, um, we are just piloting some new technologies to to put collars on them. So, again, non non invasive work. We um, put a collar there. You know, that's very lightweight. They don't they don't seem to be bothered by it. Um, and the the two pair mates, the male and female pair both wear these collars, and every time they come in close proximity to one another, it, it, it um, you know, like pings that event and records the duration and frequency and time of that event. So at the moment, we're just trying to get some baseline measures of what their social behavior looks like in their, you know, home enclosures. And then we're going to um, try to get into um, some recordings of their uh, vocalizations and the timing of that, and then also kind of looking at um, you know what? How do they respond to different kinds of odors and and uh, you know other other social signals that might come from um, the odors of others? So you know urine scents and um, you know overmarking scent marking behavior as well. Yeah, very interesting. We'll we'll be curious to see what happens there. Um, so you write in the the article, what impact is this social disconnection? You know, the mask on and, and not leaving the house. What impact is the social disconnection having on our brains? So what uh, what do you think? Yeah, that's a great question. I think neuroscientists all over the world are probably wondering the same thing. <laughs> I mean, we know we know that that isolation and, and loneliness have have big impacts on our mood, and we know that mood is, um, you know, mediated in, in a large part by the neurotransmitter systems of the brain. And so my, my sort of, I don't know, you know, I, it's, I don't study serotonin or, or dopamine directly, but my idea as, as a, you know, generalist neuroscientist would be that a lot of these hormones and, and neurotransmitters that we think of that modulate mood um, so, like I said, serotonin, um, dopamine, even maybe some of the uh, endogenous opioids in the brain are, are very likely to be uh, sort of underexpressed um, or, or reduced, I would think. But, um, you know, it's very hard to sort of establish that kind of work. Um, you know, we can't really do any sort of invasive work to try to figure that out in the human brain. And even if we wanted to get blood samples and look at how um, you know, circulating levels in our bloodstream of these, um, you know, other kinds of, of signaling hormones. Um, a lot of human research has been stopped by the pandemic, so you can't even have uh, volunteers come into your lab and do um, any sort of sampling at the moment. So human neuroscientists are actually being very negatively affected by this pandemic. Um, some labs have started opening again, but a lot of, of human subjects' research has still stopped. Yeah, it's something I think we we probably don't focus on. It's not, not in the popular yeah. press. Um, so uh, you go on to say that this uh, uh, one particularly painful challenge is the lack of social connection during major life events. Of course, births, weddings, and death of a loved one. And and you've experienced uh, that. You're, you, you lost your mother in early May during the height of the, the pandemic. I did. Uh, and this was not, uh, this was not COVID-related. Uh, she had battled uh, breast cancer, right? Yes, yes. Uh, so tell us, uh, tell us about this. And by the way, thank you for sharing this personal experience as it relates to your science in this article and, and with us here. Um, so, uh, you, you say, you know, some, you know, a, a wedding, you could postpone it <laughs> or you could adjust it. With a death, obviously, um, that, that, that's it. And you've got to make some painful decisions about uh, yeah. memorial services was, and other yeah, it things. Yeah, it was hard. I mean, we... You know, even though she had been battling breast cancer for five and a half years, um, it, it still happened pretty quickly. And so, 
you know, her, her health declined very fast. And, and we did have to make some, some decisions afterwards about, you know, do we have a memorial now? Do we, you know, do we get people together that are, that are in Atlanta? I, I ended up, um, in the article, I describe how we, my husband and I and, and our dog got in the car intending to drive to Atlanta because we thought we might have time and, and we would be able to be there and, and be together for a little while. But um, I ended up having to detour and get on a plane out of Denver to fly there as fast as I could. But um, I didn't make it in time, which is just heartbreaking. Um, but in the sort of aftermath, um, when it's, it was just my dad, my brother, my sister-in-law, and my husband and I uh, in the house, you know, reeling from this, what, do we, you know, we can't open our home up to our friends and neighbors. We can't really, you know, accept. Uh, it, it was really hard. It was, it was, it, you know, it was, it was nice to have that very dedicated time as just us as a nuclear family, but it was also really hard to, tr- you know, turn away, uh, you know, community members, family members, people who wanted to help and, and wanted to grieve with us. And so, we eventually made the difficult decision um, to just postpone a memorial. You know, we didn't. We have family all over the country. Um, my mom was one of the most friendly and social people you'd ever meet, and so she had friends all over as well. Um, and so it would. It just didn't. It didn't make sense to try to say, "All right, we're doing it." You know, come if you want to, or come if you feel safe. You know, that we didn't want to put that burden on on the strong community of loved ones that were that were reeling from this news so um so, so what is lost uh, when we can't do that it, there, there is something important right about as you write it uh, mourning death side by side uh in yeah, you know, including being, physical being touch together. hugs etc cetera, etc cetera. but uh talk a little bit about that that's uh, you know and, and many many thousands of families are, are going through this during this pandemic yeah hundreds of thousands um, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. You know, I think the question kind of might get at, you know, I don't want to be too philosophical, but kind of the, the human condition of, you know, sharing meals and, and laughter and tears, you know, there's, there's a, a quote that I remember from, you know, something in high school that's like shared love is, is double, but shared sorrow is half. And and I think there's there's some real truth to that that you know being together and sharing stories and feeling understood and just having that connection really you know takes some of the sting out of something as as difficult as grief. And this is compounded. You make a reference to this in the article. Uh, this is compounded by the fact that during the pandemic, hundreds of thousands of people have died essentially alone. Yeah, it's it's it breaks my heart. I mean, we were very lucky in a way. Um, I don't know if luck is really the right word, but we were fortunate that um, our that mo- mom was at home, um, so we didn't have to have the um, you know added. I don't want to know. I don't know if trauma is the right word, but the, the 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 challenge of having a loved one be isolated in the ICU, and I I know that there are likely many listeners out there who have been through that this year, and I I my heart goes out to them. So how do you, I guess I'll just ask you personally, uh, how do you, how have you mourned your, your mother? It, uh, in many instances, it has not been able to be, you know, physically with people. Yeah, it's, you know, the, we, we stayed in Atlanta for about a month. Um, and so that was a nice long period to be together. We did a lot of 
unearthing of, of things, you know, that had been tucked away in cabinets and closets and basements. And I think the, you know, the, the, the memories that that brought up was actually, you know, very cathartic. I mean, we were doing a lot of, you know, do we keep this? Do we throw that away? Um, my brother and I actually made a joke. We were, uh, um, you know, my mom collected, not collected, she, she kept all sorts of stuff, you know, childhood stuffed animals and, and things that I had thought she would have thrown away a long time ago. And as we're unearthing all these things, which is, you know, hard work, um, my brother made this joke and he was like, oh, no, uh, the, the protector of all of our trash is gone. <laughs> like, we have to finally decide what we want to keep and what we want to throw away. And so it was actually a really kind of heartwarming process to be, you know, going through these boxes of things from our childhood together. And, uh, and there were a lot of them, and a lot of them was from my childhood because my, my brother stayed in Atlanta, and so he's been able over the years to, you know, oh, no, Mom, you can throw that out, or, oh, no, I don't need that. But I've been traveling all over for my work, and so I haven't been home. And so most of the, most of the um, you know, immediate sort of grieving period was actually spent reminiscing and, and looking back over a lot of stuff. And so it, in a way it was, it was really healing, um, it, obviously, it's it's a long road, and um, you know, grief is not linear. Um, months down the road, you find yourself right back at the beginning again. Um, but it's you know, it's it's been it's been a process. We've had a lot of loved ones reach out, um, lots of phone calls, and and um, you know, Zoom calls and connections with people in the meantime. And and one of the things that I think has helped me get through it is how many folks have reached out and and thanked us for waiting to have a memorial. Um, so that we can do it safely. Because I know I've heard a lot of stories from people who have gone to funerals and memorial services in the last year where you can't hold hands or you can't hug each other um, and you have to wear masks and it's just somehow even more painful to be, you know, celebrating and remembering the life of someone when you can't even take your mouth off or your your mask off and, and share a meal, you know, and sit down together and and I and so I I don't know I, I I think while it might be extending our grief to not have the memorial I I think it's the best possible route forward for our particular group of people um, I look forward to when we can actually do it but I don't know you know hopefully it's in the closer future yeah not, yeah you know, certainly distant. yeah to hope that for you and and for the the rest of the families who are waiting as well. Uh, I just want to quote you from your article. Um, You say, My husband wisely reminds me during my lowest points that the depth of my grief is a direct reflection of the intensity of the love that my mother and I shared. Your husband's a very wise man. (laughs) You can say that again. Uh, So that that is a truth, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think, I think it's, it's nice. It's a nice sentiment, and it's true, and I think it really really helps me when I'm struggling to sort of, you know, flip the narrative and, and just reflect on how wonderful our relationship was. You know, I was really lucky. I know there are a lot of people out there that have strained relationships with their, with their mothers or their parents um, or siblings, for that matter, and that, you know, that, that, that can be really hard, and I feel really lucky that um, I was so close to her. Yeah. Uh, so uh, uh, I'm very glad there are a couple of photos of your mother in this story. People can go to utahstatemagazine.usu.edu. One with uh, with her enjoying your looks like your wedding day with you, and yeah. and then there's another uh, very nice uh, photograph uh, of her. She she uh, she seems delightful. Um, 
So uh, let's bring this back to uh, to I guess biology, neurobiology, what you what you study. Um, so loss of of these social bonds, right? Loss of someone you've bonded with, whether you're talking about animals or humans, um, is that that would have a biological component, I would think. Yeah. So I I myself in my own research program have have yet to to really dig into this, but. There are others that have started to, to sort of flip the focus, and instead of looking at the mechanisms that are important for the formation of these social bonds and the maintenance of these social bonds, um, have, beginning, have begun to look at, at what happens with bond disruptions, so, so loss, loss of social bonds. There's actually a, a friend and colleague of mine in science, um, Dr. Zoe Donaldson, over at um, uh, University of Colorado Boulder, and she's, she's doing this in prairie voles. So she's looking at what happens in the brain when you lose your pair mate. Um, and this is new research that's, that's just begun in the last few years. She's also an assistant professor, so um, a little bit farther along in her career than I am, but still you know, early career faculty. And I'm just thrilled to see how um, the techniques that she's using to study the brain, um, how, how it tells us something about what happens when, when, a, when a bond is, is lost. Because um, I think there is a, a lot of, you know, people report feeling disoriented and 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 sort of confused, and you know, all of, obviously the sorrow and the and the sadness as well. And so these are are you know mood changes, but they're bigger than that. They're 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 habit changes, they're routines that change. And I think all of these kinds of things, these you know, day to day norms and the 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 expectation that that you have come to you know be um, you, that you get you get in a routine, and I think when those get disrupted, there's all sorts of things in your brain that are going to change. Um, we'll uh, we'll take a break next and come back with just a, a short segment at the end here. But uh, you give some good advice at the end of the article. You say, uh, for those of you who can, call your mom, tell her you love her. Just may give her the burst of oxytocin she needs to get through the day. That's <laughs> that's excellent. Uh, good advice for all of us. Um, so um, we'll uh, take a, a quick break here. We'll come back with more. Uh, our guest for the hour is uh, Sarah Freeman. She is assistant professor of neurobiology at Utah State University. We'll have more following this. This is Science by the Slice. Why are there so many species of plants? Why do some plants thrive while others don't? USU ecologist Noel Beckman is exploring these questions by studying spatial characteristics of varied tree species. Patterns of seed dispersal and seed mortality influence the spatial structure of plant populations and the local coexistence of competing species, Beckman says. By examining these new patterns, scientists learn about the mechanisms that allow different plant species to coexist. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in the sciences and mathematics. Details at usu.edu science. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Our guest for the hour is Sarah Freeman, Assistant Professor of Neurobiology at Utah State University. And we've been talking about her uh, uh, very interesting article 
in the latest edition of Utah State Magazine. You can find that at utahstatemagazine.usu.edu. It's titled Love and Loss During a Pandemic. We've been talking about her research dealing with uh, social bonding and oxytocin. Uh, so, Sarah Freeman, I I really wanted to talk about this, so let's take a couple of minutes with this. So in your At your website, sarahmfreeman.com, you t- say that you've designed a couple of interdisciplinary upper-level seminar courses during graduate school. One of those is titled The Coevolution of Dogs and Humans. Uh, fascinated. Tell me a little bit about this. Yeah, so this was actually kind of a pipe dream uh, class that I designed in graduate school as a part of a um, teaching fellowship application where we had to create um, two full syllabi for um, classes that weren't currently represented in the curriculum of that university. And so um, I love dogs. I think they're amazing. And I've always thought it was really interesting to study um, the sort of relationships between dogs and humans. I think it opens up a lot of different avenues um, for inter- interdisciplinary uh, educational uh, questions. So anthropology, um, cognitive neuroscience, all, all sorts of things. How, how did they, how, you know, how did the domestication process work? How, how, do, they, how do they form bonds with us? <laughs> I mean, they, they have evolved from wolves, and wolves have a monogamous social structure as well. They have an alpha male and female pair. And so, you know, have, have we over the course of domestication sort of co-opted the pair bonding circuitry of the wolf brain to create a domesticated subspecies that actually transfers that attachment capacity to us. Yeah, that is that is very, very interesting. Um, and, uh, of course, that could be a topic for another hour. Maybe we'll do that at some point. <laughs> Well, we've been talking with Sarah Freeman. She is an assistant professor of neurobiology at Utah State University, and uh, you can find her at her website, sarahmfreeman.com. You can find her uh, moving article, a very interesting article, at utahstatemagazine.usu.edu. It's in the latest uh, edition uh, of the magazine. It's called Love and Loss During a Pandemic. Sarah Freeman, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. You're listening to Access Utah, that particular conversation uh, first broadcast in February of this year. And uh, on Thursdays, we conclude the program with uh, Leo T. and Skywatcher. Skywatcher Leo T. here. As we look up, look around, get a little bit lost in space. Let's look up into the night sky and do a little space exploration of our own. Mercury is faded and sunk out of the twilight sight, but Venus will surprise you in the sunset as appears higher in the west now. It'll surprise you toward the feet of Gemini as night darkens. Mars is still in the west, but it's shrinking night by night. It's that modest little fire spark lower left of the twin stars of Gemini and Pollux and Castor. And speaking of Mars, the Perseverance rover is marking 100 days on our neighboring planet. Amongst its accomplishments, besides just getting there and landing, which is amazing on its own, are launching a tiny helicopter, Ingenuity, taking and relaying over 75,000 photos from the Jezero crater, generating oxygen from the carbon dioxide-dominated Martian atmosphere, and traveling to its first exploration zone. Go Perseverance! Also, the Chinese are tooling around in their rover as the United Arab Emirates orbit above. Taking our eyes out a bit further, Neptune is in Aquarius in the morning sky, east of Jupiter, low in the southeast before dawn begins. We've got a great shot on the Skywatcher site that shows Jupiter and its great red spot as well as two moons crossing, orange Io and dark gray Ganymede. Thanks Christopher Go for this great image. 
Intriguing Saturn hangs to Jupiter's right in the early morning light. Also, a large asteroid came into the solar system. You probably heard about this. It's about four and a half million miles from Earth. That doesn't seem very close, but it's a big one. And according to NASA's JPL lab, it's about 600 feet long. It's moving about 40,000 miles an hour. Another asteroid was 12,000 miles away in April, going about 18,000 miles an hour. A little closer in Earth orbit, two Russian cosmonauts were lucky enough to perform a spacewalk outside the International Space Station. It took about seven hours as they took apart an old docking module called PERS, which means pier. Later this summer, Russia's Progress 77 cargo freighter will remove the nearly 20-year-old PERS module from the orbiting laboratory, pulling the minivan-sized compartment back to Earth. Both the cargo ship and PERS will burn up safely in the atmosphere above the Pacific Ocean, NASA officials say. Deorbiting PERS will clear up a parking spot for the new Russian multi-purpose laboratory module named NAKA, meaning science in Russian. On Skywatcher Leo T, it's many cultures, one sky. This week we take a look at Maui's hook from the Maori tribe of New Zealand. In the sky mist, Maui was a powerful god, but not so good a fisherman. He snagged his hook, which is the beautiful constellation Scorpius, and line on the bottom of the sea and thought he had hooked a big fish. He pulled hard and pulled hard and pulled up the North Island of New Zealand to Ika a Maui, the fish of Maui. Imagine seeing the hook or Scorpius twinkle low on the horizon above the ocean near New Zealand in the waves. Keep looking up, look around, get lost in space. Skywatcher Leo T on Utah Public Radio, UPR, with translator stations statewide and streaming live at upr.org. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Logan Summerfest, celebrating Juneteenth with a special Motown show featuring the Sensations Show Band, June 19th at the Cache County Fairgrounds, logansummerfest.com. And Utah State University MBA offering opportunities to achieve new goals and further careers in the new year. The fall semester application deadline is June 15th. More information can be found at HuntsmanMBA.com. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, and also heard at upr.org. Glad you're with us. It's now 10 o'clock.